Good morning, Grace. Open your Bibles to the book of Psalms. It should be in the middle of your Bible. Maybe you may have to go to the left or right a little bit, but you, you should land in the book of Psalms. We're going to look at finish Psalm 1 today. Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love for us. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We didn't come up with these words, Father, of saying, oh, how he loves us. We didn't make it up. We're not crossing our fingers and hoping that you love us. We're not biting our nails. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's where we got the idea, God, that you love us. And your word says that you loved us and sent your son. That is the proof of your love, that you sent Jesus to live the life that we could never live, to die the death that we all deserve because we're sinners, and you raised him from the dead to prove it. And that's where we bank our hope this morning, God. We don't have to cross our fingers and sweat it out and bite our nails. We believe that you love us because of Jesus and how wonderful that is. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for giving us your spirit to live inside of us as a down payment guaranteeing that we'll be with you forever. Thank you for giving us your word. But we do thank you that Jesus sacrificed his life. And as we think about that, God, Memorial Day weekend, we do thank you for those who have served in the military, that have given their lives so that we can come here and say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, without being dragged off to jail. We have freedoms that people have secured for us by your grace because of your sovereignty. And we just say thank you for that. But ultimately, we thank you for Jesus. It's all because of him that we have what we have and that we do what we do. May you be honored and glorified. And now would you incline our hearts to your testimonies, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a question today. What's the best thing to happen to your mouth? What's the best thing to happen to your mouth since teeth? The fast food chain McDonald's wants you to believe that the Big Mac is the best thing to happen to your mouth since teeth. It's part of their latest marketing campaign to get us to use our mouths to talk about and then to eat the Big Mac. McDonald's wants you to believe that the Big Mac is the best thing to happen to your mouth since teeth. But I have a feeling the author of Psalm 1 would disagree. Not because he'd hate fast food, but because the author of Psalm 1 thinks that there is something far better than the Big Mac. The author of Psalm 1 thinks that there is something better than a hamburger that should occupy your mouth. Yes. But I do think the author of Psalm 1 would appreciate one aspect of McDonald's latest Big Mac marketing campaign. I think the author of Psalm 1 would steal one of McDonald's new Big Mac marketing taglines and he would let it be the heading of this psalm to the chagrin of Bible publishers, I'm sure. 
In fact, I'm going to steal the new Big Mac tagline and let it be our big idea for the sermon today. And it's this, think with your mouth. That's what McDonald's wants you to do. And that's what the author of Psalm 1 wants you to do. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute when I say think with your mouth. But first, I want to ask you one more question. Why is Psalm 1 Psalm 1? If the Psalms are the soundtrack of our lives and are the songs that the people of God have been singing in worship for centuries, then why don't the Psalms start off with Psalm 150, which is very worshipful, F-U-L-L, full of worship? Why not start the book of Psalms off by highlighting God's steadfast love for his people and use Psalm 103 and let it be the new Psalm 1? Better yet, since we live in a fallen world and we all experience troubles, why not start off with Psalm 73? Or, since many of us experience family drama, and some of you this weekend as you're with your families, why not start off with Psalm 128? Why is Psalm 1 Psalm 1? Here's why. Because it gets right to the heart of the matter of what it means to be a human being. There are two ways to live in this world. Two humanities, two destinies. Psalm 1 doesn't dilly-dabble around. It gets right to it. Psalm 1 is saying to you and saying to me, nothing matters more in this life and in the next than belonging to the congregation of the righteous, than belonging to the people of God, than belonging to the church. That's why Psalm 1 is Psalm 1. Look at verses 1 through 2. Hear the word of the Lord again. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day. And night. Last week we saw that the blessed life, the happy life, the prosperous life is lived by saying no to the world and yes to the word of God. The blessed or happy life is by saying no to the pleasures and the pressures of the world when they say come find delight in these things. It's saying no to that. But we also saw last week that it's not enough to say no to the world that we must also say yes to the word of God and the God who is revealed In the word of God. But the psalmist doesn't just delight in God's word. That's proved by his preoccupation with God's law. He's obsessed with God's word. He meditates on it. Verse 2 says. But what does it mean to meditate on God's word? The Hebrew word is the word Hagah, and it has the idea of vocalizing or muttering or murmuring under your breath. It means that you vocalize with your mouth what your mind is preoccupied with. It means that what is in your mind, what you are thinking about, comes out through your mouth. The Hebrew word Hagah is used in reference to a dove cooing in Isaiah 38. In Isaiah 31, it's used in reference to a lion growling with that low growl over its prey. 
In Isaiah 16, 7, Isaiah says that the people moan and mutter for raisin cakes. They are so hungry that what they are thinking about comes out through their mouth. This is what our kids do, isn't it? When they're hungry, they tell you. They don't sit around and think, I'm hungry. It's mom, dad, I'm hungry, I'm starving, I haven't eaten since whenever, right? That's the Hebrew word for meditate. It's like the movie A Christmas Story. You know the one that they show for 24 hours during Christmas? It's about Ralphie who wants the Red Ryder BB gun and every adult in Ralphie's life tells him what? You'll shoot your eye out. That movie. What does Ralphie's dad do throughout that movie? He meditates according to the Hebrew word Hagah. Now, the words that he says, he's not meditating the way the Psalm 1 would like him to meditate. I should have specified that in the last service because what he says is not very biblical half the time or most of the time. But he meditates because what does he do throughout the whole, the whole movie? He's running around when the furnace goes out. You hear him saying, He's talking about what his mind is preoccupied with. When the neighbor's dogs run through the house and into the kitchen and destroy the Christmas turkey, what does he do? You know, it's always he's muttering, he's murmuring talking under his breath. That's the idea of the Hebrew word Hagah, which means to meditate. The psalmist says, this is what I do with God's law. It is in my mouth and it comes out. Meditation in the Old Testament doesn't just involve the mind. It involves the mouth. It means you make audible what you are thinking about. It involves reciting it. It's not this you know, Zen Buddhism, cross your legs and sit down and go, um, that's not the Hebrew word for meditate. It's to think and then to say and to speak. Meditation upon the word of God is crucial if you are a Christian, a disciple. And that's why Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, told Joshua as he took over leadership after Moses died in leading the nation of Israel. We read it last week. We'll read it again in Joshua 1.8. It says, the book, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall hagah, meditate, murmur, speak it under your breath day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. To meditate according to Psalm 1 and Joshua 1 means to think with your mouth. Let me ask you another question. And you have to promise to be honest in your heart. And I'm not asking you this to shame you or guilt you in any way. But I want you to be honest and to think about it. What if someone came in here today and said, I will give every single one of you $1,000 for every Bible verse that you memorize between now and next Sunday morning. I mean, what if somebody came in here and they had stacks of Benjamins right down here and said, everyone that comes in, we're going to pile them up and give you $1,000 for every Bible verse that you memorize between today and next week. How many of you would begin to memorize God's word? How many of you would go gung-ho and you're like, 10 or 20 verses I'm going to memorize? How many of you that say, memorization is too hard, I can't do it, would suddenly get the gift of memorization? It's like the Holy Spirit just showed up and for one week I can memorize scripture. Let me share a story with you that I shared with you as we went through Philippians. I posed that very question five years ago to the church that I pastored in Texas 
the one we pastored before we came to grace. The day that I posed that question was May 15th, 2008. And we began memorizing God's word as a church. We used the Desiring God fighter verses, which are in our bulletin that we use here as well. I would put one in the bulletin every week, just like we do here. And faithfully, for over three plus years, I was putting them in. Fast forward to the summer of 2011 after I announced that we would be leaving Texas and coming here to Pastor Grace, I got a call from a guy in the church who wanted to meet up with me. And this was not uncommon because I got a lot of calls that last month over there that people say, I want to have coffee with you one last time. So it was nothing unusual. So I showed up at 6 a.m. to meet him at Starbucks. And I had no idea what awaited me. I considered this man and his wife and his, his sons, you know, dear brothers, And a sister in Christ, we weren't particularly close, but we were close enough that we had a connection and a bond. They would buy Heather and I gifts uh, over the years, always bringing bags of like Starbucks coffee and Starbucks gift cards. That's my love language, if you are into that book. So they would do that, and so we, we had this connection with them. So I show up at Starbucks, I get coffee, I sit down outside, and he just starts weeping, weeping uncontrollably. And I don't know what's going on. I don't know what he's about to tell me. And he says with a quivering voice, and he had to stop several times and just weep as he said the next paragraph to me, and I'm paraphrasing. He said, when we got the letter in the mail that announced that you were leaving for California, it felt like a kick in the gut. And I just wept. And it's not because I was losing a good friend. We're friends, but we're not that close. And I couldn't figure out why it hit me so hard, and then it dawned on me. I felt like I was losing God's word. I thought, how am I going to get God's word? And then he proceeded to pull out these two stacks of papers that he had clipped together. And he threw them on the table outside. These are the bulletins. From the church there. And you can see one of them's handwritten because sometimes he wouldn't be there and he would call in and he'd say, what's the fire diverse for this week? So he would, he would write it out and he carries these things around. And he said, I've been memorizing those fire verses every Sunday since you said that over three plus years ago. He had told me at that point I've memorized over 350 verses since May 15th, 2008. In fact, some of the fighter verses, as you know here, are not just one verse, but there's several verses each week. So at this time, he had probably memorized over 400 verses. And he proceeded to tell me that it takes him several hours to quote every verse. He said, I get up in the morning and the first thing I do is I just start reciting these verses. And then he went on to tell me how his life is night and day different since memorizing God's word. He says, now my mind naturally drifts to God's word, to the Bible. And he said, I love God's word. And he said, that's why I'm crying. He cried off and on for three hours as we talked and sat outside drinking our coffee at Starbucks. He said, I love God's word so much that I fear losing it. And so he asked about sermons. He wanted sermons. So now he listens to the podcast. And every Monday morning, ever since moving here, it has been my privilege to text him his fighter verse for the week. 
In fact, his son heard his dad's story. His son didn't even know this was happening. And then his son said, I went in on that. Would you text me fighter verses every Monday morning? So I text both of them verses every Monday morning. Well, I knew it had to be, he had to be well over 500 verses by now. So I, I texted him last week and said, what are we up to now? What's the number? He said, I said, we just passed the five-year mark, the anniversary of when we started. We're coming to the end of year five of the, of the list of verses that I'm sending you. I said, where are we at? How many are you at? And this is what he said. He texted this back to me. This week's verses represents the 254th week for a total of 544 verses. I recite 100 weeks or 225 verses one day, and the next day... I recite the next 100 weeks, which is 208 verses. And then the next day, I recite the current 54 weeks, which is 111 verses. So every day, he's reached that point where he cannot say these verses all in one day. He's got to start dividing them up. So on Monday, for instance, he will get up and say 225 verses throughout the course of the day. Then the next day, he will say 208 verses. And then the next day, he's working on that current 111 verses. In addition, he says, every day I recite the 355 verses that I memorized while attending this this other Bible church in the 80s. Therefore, I recite approximately 560 verses every day. So between the fighter verses and these other 335 that he has memorized, he is at 899. So he texted and said, so what are we going to do in about a month? I don't plan on quitting. It is my hope and prayer that you'll continue to send me a couple of verses each week. I can sweeten this request with Starbucks cards. (laughs) My friend Scott has made me love God's word on a much deeper level. He's one of my heroes now. He is up there in my eyes and in my mind with John Calvin, John Owen, Jonathan Edwards... I want to be like him, and I want that for you, Grace. I want to be like God. I want you to be like God. I want us to be a church who thinks with their mouths. I want us to be a church that mutters Scripture, that under our mouth we are always talking about it, driving in the car, going places. In fact, that's what Scott said he did. He said he got to the point where he's like, I don't even want to listen to the radio. And he has about a 35 or 40-minute commute into Dallas every morning. He said, I don't even want to listen to the radio anymore. I'm just reciting God's word because I love it. It's changed my life. I want us to be a church whose minds naturally drift to the word of God. A church that delights in and meditates and talks and speaks this book. I want us to be like my friend Scott. By the way, Scott is a busy man, if you're wondering. He's a lawyer. And he has four sons, and one of his sons is a special needs child. Every time that I saw Scott at Starbucks, as I would run into him sometimes, he had stacks of paper all over this long table that they had. And kind of the running joke among the breezes at Starbucks was that that's his office. That's his table. He gets there at 6 o'clock every morning. He spreads out all these stacks of papers, and he works on whatever court case he's working on. He's representing major companies in court, and yet the priority of his life is God's Word. He is living Psalm 1. I know some of you may struggle to memorize scripture. I do. I can memorize it for a few months and then it just kind of dissipates. 
let me challenge you to memorize God's word. Just find three or four verses that you say, these are going to be my life verses. I'm hanging on to them for the rest of my life. I'm going to recite them all day. Or if you really struggle with memorization, you just take the fighter verse that's in the bulletin right down here, and you just cut it off and tape it on the bathroom mirror, stick it in your wallet, put it on the dashboard of your car, carry it around with you in your pocket. Here's a great verse this week. The fighter verse is, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15.1. Put that verse in the middle of your living room and see what happens. That'll change your family, won't it? Just cut that out and carry it with you. Maybe you can't memorize it. Maybe you just carry it around and you pull it out of your pocket all day and you just say, Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15.1, a harsh word stirs up wrath. Have to look at it. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. See what happens when you memorize different translations? You just put that in your pocket and you just say it all day, all day, all day. When you do that, your life will begin to change. Notice that the psalmist says that the godly man meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. This means that he does this all the time. He is preoccupied with God's word. And so what happens when you begin to think with your mouth like this? Look at verses 3 through 6. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is a picture of the prosperity and the blessed life and the happy life and the joy-filled life and the gospel-centered life that you will experience as you begin to think with your mouth. Verses 1 and 2 are connected to verses 3 and 4. You don't see it in the Engl- most English Bibles. It's not in mine. It's not in the ESV. But, but, but there's an and there at the beginning of verse 3. And that and is very important. It shows us that the blessed and happy life that is about to be described in verse 3 flows directly out of the delight and the constant meditation upon the Word of God. If you want to be a Psalm 1 verse 3 Christian, the way to do that is to delight in and to meditate upon and to speak with your mouth the word of God day and night. They're connected by the word and. I love what the psalmist here because in verse 3 he gives us a picture. And it's not something that none of us can relate to. He says, it's like you're like a tree. And we're like, I I know trees. He's very practical. The righteous man is like a tree. And we all know what a tree is. He's planted. This means that he has stability. The roots of his life go deep. When the winds blow and the storms come, there's stability. He's planted by streams of water. There's vitality. He's getting life and nourishment from the water. He's not drying up and dying. He, he says he yields its fruit in season. There's productivity. There's spiritual growth happening in his life. The fruit of the Spirit is being manifested in his life because the roots of his life go down deep into the water of the Word of God. He says his leaf does not wither. There's durability, able to stand the pressures and storms of life. And then he said he prospers. There's prosperity. Now, you may be thinking, 
But I've known Christians who love God's word and meditate upon God's word and read it and study it and memorize it, and yet I've seen them suffer tremendously. I've seen them suffer in such a way that Psalm 1 verse 3 seems like it can't be real, it can't be true. That's true. That describes many saints who have loved and delighted in God's word, and yet they have suffered terribly. Psalm 1 is not saying that there will never be problems in life. Psalm 1 is not saying that if you delight in and meditate and memorize God's word, then you will have a pain-free life and a suffering-free life. It is not making that promise to you. You know why? If you just hang around, in two weeks we're going to get to Psalm 3, and we're going to see that David is experiencing a lot of suffering. And he was a man who delighted in and meditated upon God's law. I like the way Old Testament scholar Alec Motier describes it. The tension that's here. The psalm is not, however, to be understood as promising unvarying prosperity to the godly man at all times. The Old Testament knows life too well to do that. Psalm 1 is sort of a creed, just as we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, and yet sometimes pass through experiences which seem to suggest that he is neither our Father nor Almighty, so also Psalm 1 is an assertion of the blessedness of the righteous man and the faith that God will see him through, as indeed verse 6 insists. You see, you don't get too far into the Psalms before you realize that the godly man or woman described in Psalm 1 actually suffer quite a bit. It's just that here in Psalm 1, the author does not want to have to insert a bunch of footnotes after every phrase saying that, oh, by the way, i got to let you know, the godly do suffer. Instead of throwing him under the bus for not mentioning at the end of every verse that the godly really do suffer, why not give him a cookie for staying on track? The godly man or woman who delights in and meditates on God's word, will have a joy-filled life. There will be spiritual growth happening. I guess he could have mentioned suffering like the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.10, where he says so succinctly, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I suppose that would have taken up maybe half a verse there in Psalm 1. He could have said that, but he didn't say that. So let's just deal with it and move on, shall we? By giving us this image of the tree that flourishes, the author is saying, believer, disciple, one who delights in and trusts in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, you are a tree. If you keep delighting in God's word and meditating upon it and muttering it and saying it with your mouth, then you will be, it'll be like water to your roots, water that will make you grow because that's Water make trees grow. The word of God will make you grow. You will flourish if you let the roots of your life go down deep into this book, into the promises in this book. In a nutshell, the psalmist is saying, think with your mouth. Think with your mouth and you'll be planted. You'll have stability. 
Think with your mouth and you'll have access to streams of water. You'll have vitality. Think with your mouth and you'll yield fruit in season. You'll be a productive disciple growing spiritually. Think with your mouth and your leaves will not wither. You'll be able to withstand the pressures of life. Think with your mouth and you'll prosper. You'll live a prosperous and successful life. But note the contrast that comes with verse 4. The wicked are not so. They're not like the righteous in verse 3. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Four phrases describe the godly man or woman, and we just get one for the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Verse 4 is so abrupt coming on the heels of verse 3. The godly man is planted by flowing streams. He bears fruit. He does not wither. All that he does prospers. The wicked, oh, they're like chaff. Verse 4's description of the wicked is so abrupt because what can you really say about chaff? There's not too much to elaborate on, is there? What happens to the chaff, though, is dead serious. Chaff or the worthless husks that have to be separated from the grain. In the ancient Near East, they would pile the wheat on the the threshing floor. They would drag this threshing sledge or this large rock over the wheat to separate the wheat from the chaff. It was that very light husk that was over the grain. And then the harvester would throw that big pile up into the air, and the wind would blow the light chaff away, and the heavy grain would fall to the ground. His point here in describing the wicked as chaff, in contrast to the godly, is that they will be tossed away. But not just tossed away by the wind. They will be tossed away eternally. Look at verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The wicked will not be able to stand in the judgment. The psalmist is looking to the end of time, the final judgment. When every human being will stand before the Lord, the wicked will not be able to stand on that day. Even though it seems like everything's hunky-dory and going great in their life, they will not be able to stand on that day. The wicked, the psalmist is saying, have no hope. They have no roots. They will be blown away eternally. This is serious business for the psalmist. But who are the wicked in this psalm? I think the wicked in Psalm 1 are fellow Israelites. Psalm 1 has the people of God in mind. Oh, sure, other psalms talk about the wicked, the pagan nations that despise Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, that don't want to bow their knee to his kingship and lordship. Psalm 2, we're going to look at next week, will address that. But I think right here in Psalm 1, it's addressing the nation of Israel, the community of God, the people of God. The psalmist seems to be concerned with the covenant people, those who claim allegiance to Yahweh but have drifted away from the Lord and have become like the world. Therefore, the wicked, described in Psalm 1, are native Israelites who have received the mark of the covenant, circumcision, but they are not really in covenant with the Lord, Yahweh. 
their hearts have not been circumcised. This means then, and you see this all over the Old Testament and all over the New Testament, that you can be numbered among the people of God and still be one of the wicked. It means that you can come to church and be involved, but not be in covenant with the Lord. It means that you could have walked the aisle and prayed that prayer and been baptized and served and have been here for 40 years, but still not be a Christian. That means that Psalm 1 is a matter of life and death. Seems like Jesus said something very similar to the psalmist in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And those who get cast away by Jesus get cast away into everlasting hell, into everlasting torment. What will they do with their mouths then? Jesus tells us in Matthew 8, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what the wicked will do with their mouths for eternity. Hell will be a place where the wicked weep and gnash their teeth. Notice that Jesus was speaking here in Matthew 8 to those ethnic Jews who were assembled among the people of God, but who did not really belong to the people of God. They were sons of the kingdom by physical birth because they were Jews, they were Israelites, but they were not sons of the kingdom, spiritually speaking, because their hearts had not been circumcised, even though they'd been circumcised physically. That's what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 1. The wicked, those who do not delight in the Lord, those who do not delight in Jesus will be driven away and perish. So what's the alternative to gnashing your teeth for eternity? The alternative to gnashing your teeth for eternity truly is the best thing to happen to your mouth since teeth. Paul tells us in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, saved from eternal torment in hell. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, who call on him with their mouths. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Every human being that says to God, have mercy on me, I am a sinner. Forgive me for rebelling against you. I was born a sinner. I've lived a life of rebellion against you and your ways. You're the, you're the sovereign Lord. You, you, are, you are it in the universe. And I have despised you. Every human being who comes and says, I've done that, God. Please have mercy on me. Forgive me. 
I believe that you poured your wrath out upon Jesus, that he lived the life I could never live because I'm so messed up by sin. I believe that he died in my place. I'm a sinner. I deserve to die. He died for me. I believe that. I believe you proved that by raising him from the dead, and I want to run to him and make him my savior and my treasure. Every human being who says that with their mouth will be saved. Call on Jesus today with your mouth and Psalm 1-6 can be true for you. What does Psalm 1-6 say? For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Jesus knows the way of the righteous. The psalmist is not saying that Jesus knows which road you took to get here and where you're going to eat lunch today, even though you haven't figured that out yet. He knows that. Of course he knows that. He's God. But that's not what the psalmist is saying. When The Hebrew word here for know has the idea of God being intimately and personally concerned about every detail of our lives. The Lord knows your way. He knows what's happening in your life. He knows what things have been preoccupying your mind that you're stressed over, that you're worked up over. He knows the pain in your heart. He knows everything. He is intimately involved and concerned with you, his child. He knows the way of the righteous. He's watching over you if you're a Christian because you are his child. He watches over and sees all of our steps. And when we take that step into the final judgment, Jesus will take care of us then. He's got us covered on that day. On that day, Jesus' mouth will say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. But to the wicked, he will say, Depart, I never knew you. Psalm 1 is so dark and heavy. Someone needed to tell the psalmist that to start the whole book of Psalms, it's all about praises, out on such a negative note was not a good idea. Someone needed to tell the psalmist that it's bad marketing to be so sober and solemn. Actually, the psalmist is not interested in coming out and being cute. He's not interested in being politically correct or having a slick marketing campaign. He's interested in truth. And the truth is weighty. The truth brings a sense of solemnity, a sense of gravity. Did you catch what the psalmist did? He begins Psalm 1 with the word blessed, and he ends with the word perish. This is what matters in life. What matters in life is whether or not you are truly a part of the people of God. Blessed and perish are the bookends of Psalm 1. I think that's pretty good marketing and a pretty good strategy for starting off a book, if you ask me. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, you're not a Christian, it would behoove you to use your mouth to cry out to him to save you now. And you just do that by saying, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I believe you lived and died and rose again, and you're coming again to judge the world. I want to escape that wrath. I want to escape hell, and I want to be adopted into your family so that I can glorify and enjoy you now in this life and for forever. God, save me. And when you pray that, just like that, you're born again. The Spirit of God makes you alive, and you get adopted into God's family. You are justified, made right with the Holy God, and now you become his son or his daughter. 
That's the gospel. That's why Jesus came. Will you call out to him today with your mouth? Or will you gnash your teeth for eternity? If you are a disciple of Jesus, don't just affirm the truth of Scripture. Cherish it. Delight in it. Take pleasure in it. Meditate upon it. This book is a feast. This book is a fountain full of promises of God saying, this is who I am. Believe. Take it into your heart. Will you do that with this book? Will you not just say, yes, I know the Bible's true, but will you love it? Cherish it. Delight in it. And meditate upon it. And think about it. And let what you're thinking come out of your mouth. This book will carry you through until the final judgment. Until the day that you hear Jesus say with his mouth, well done. Thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Think with your mouth. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, don't you think it would be a good time to use your mouth to declare his praises? Let's stand and sing like a bunch of people who have been redeemed Let's sing about his word. Let's stand up and sing Psalm 1 and use our mouths to sing like a bunch of people who have been redeemed and who will be safe at the final judgment because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We we know we're all sinners here, every single one of us. And yet there's a difference between a righteous sinner And a wicked sinner. The righteous sinner is the one who's a sinner but who's been covered by the blood of Jesus and given his righteousness and perfection. And we marvel at that, God. For those that don't belong. For those who couldn't say, I'm blessed today, but that I'm one of those who will perish. Would you open their eyes now? For those of us who are your disciples, may we stand up and sing the truth of your word. We thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you for giving us your spirit. May we be a church that loves your word and meditates on it day and night for your glory and for our growth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.